Hello, and welcome to the Watford Jazz Junction podcast. I'm Chris. And today I'm chatting with Camilla George. So, some serious sax talk coming up. Hello, 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 and welcome to the first episode of Series 3 of the Watford Jazz Junction podcast. Now, I'm straight down to business today, since there is so much that I want to ask my special guest, as I'm joined by one of the great players on the UK jazz scene. Sax player, composer, leader of jazz, jazz fusion and Afrofuturism, MOBO nominee and creator of one of my favourite albums of recent years, I sang, it can only be Camilla George. Camilla, hello, how are you? Hi, I'm good, thanks. God, I should have mentioned as well in our intro that you were also a member of our failed Ronnie Scott's quiz team the year before last. What went wrong? <laughs> well, we didn't know any of the answers. I feel that's what went wrong. It's those wise guys from Jazzwise or whatever. There's this, like some proper nerdy knowledge out there, right? I feel, yeah, that, and I'm pretty sure people were cheating. I think we were robbed. Oh, see, there, there's our get out of jail card. We're honest. <laughs> so listen, there's so much I want to ask you about new stuff, but I should imagine for some listeners, it might be fantastic just to get a bit of an intro uh, to you. But what's really interesting to me is how did you get into jazz in the first place? What's the backstory? Um, the backstory is that um, my dad was a massive jazz fan. I only discovered actually um, quite far into this that his dad was a saxophone player. So my granddad was a saxophone player in Grenada where my dad is from. Um, But he had died before I was born, so I'd never met him. But my dad used to sit me down every Sunday and we'd have jazz hour. And it was enforced listening to Sonny Stitt, um, Cannonball Adderley, Jimmy Smith. He Everything. He had so... Uh, like such a wealth of vinyl um, in terms of jazz that it was a real education and that was it really I was hooked from then see I think we should put that on the on the curriculum jazz hour with Camilla's dad exactly the, uh, that's awesome what so you just sat there around the record player and just like diligently listened yeah and then he'd tell me stories he'd be like oh well you know uh, I was around in like 60 something and I went to see Cannibal Adley and blah, and then I saw that this so-and-so at Ronnie Scott's yeah it was wicked I love it so how old were you when you picked up a, a horn for the first time was it always a saxophone yeah I was actually eight um a friend of my mum's had this boyfriend who had moved out but he'd left his saxophone behind and she couldn't get a sound out of it and it was a tenor and I um, picked it up and got a, got a note and I was like, yes, I want to play this. But unfortunately, I was really young and back in the day that, you know, you people didn't learn sax at that, that age. I mean, now I've got loads of students who started at that age, but it just wasn't a thing. So I had to wait until I got to secondary school to start when I was 11. It's funny that, isn't it? Because I, I play the, the tenor. Um... And I wasn't allowed to do it until I was, I think, 14 even, Um, which is fine because I, uh, sorry, that's my producer, Teddy, if you can hear barking. Um, Yeah, but I wasn't allowed to play the instrument I wanted to play till I'd sort of done enough diligence on the recorder and then the clarinet. Eventually I got the saxophone, you know, which which makes you sort of look forward to it. But I I could see no reason not to get my, my fingers around it much younger. Yeah, I had to do the recorder, good old misery stick. I hated it and was asked not to continue because I'd got frustrated and I used my recorder to hit another child, which was frowned upon. 
the standard the standard beating weapon of choice in in all music <laughs> in all music departments exactly. um so then what so you you got pretty good on it and went through your teen years were you sort of starting to play on a, on a scene particularly then or did you wait for music college or what what happened um actually when i was um 13 or 14 i went to the Guildhall summer school and that's yeah, yeah. where i met shanti son and um that was great i uh met a few people actually that I've become uh, good friends with Sophie Alloway, um, a drummer. We met at that that summer school, and from then I just started I, having regular lessons with Shanti Sun. Um, also, I was very lucky at school. They realised that I was I was quite keen. I was initially having sax lessons with another boy, but he preferred football, so he sacked it off. And they said that I could audition to go to a, like a weekend music school which most people I think do and I was very lucky that my sax teacher there uh, Glenn Williams was uh, in the Jazz Warriors and that's how I first heard about Gary and Janine um, so when I was much younger yeah was must have been 11 or 12 we went to see uh, Jazz Jamaica with my mum yeah and that's how, where I met Gary, Crosby and Janine. And they were so nice. And they said, you know, you have to come to our jam sessions and you have to do this. And gradually I became more and more involved with the Warriors. And eventually you joined Jazz Jamaica as well, right? Yeah, I, I never forget that one. The first call for it. Actually, they called me once and um, they thought like maybe there would be an opening, but it didn't work out. And then they called me again. And the first gig was in uh, Slovakia. I was like, whoa. As you do. This is amazing. Yeah. Your eyes must have been as big as saucers at like, hold on, I'm now joining the band that I was listening to when I was a little girl. And now it's happened. I, I must be quite good. Yeah. I mean, I think the people in Jazz Jamaica will will attest that and this is the the brilliance of Gary Crosby and Janine to be honest with you I wasn't ready to be in that band um we're talking about sax players of the level of Dennis Baptiste um I, I got you know it was a hard education when I joined that band and they really um they were you know they really took time to put me through my paces not because they were mean but because they believed in me and they wanted me to get there and you know if you ask them now They'll say, you know, I remember Pete, Pete Eckford, the percussionist, he's not the most tactful of people. It's like, when you joined us, you were awful. I was like, oh, great, thanks. Oh, well, well, at least he didn't swear. No, he didn't swear. <laughs> um, but he, yeah, it was like, but, you know, now you know, you've put so much work into what you're doing. And I think that's the thing, you know, they do give you opportunities when perhaps maybe you're not 100% ready, but they give it to people that knows who will work to get to that level. Yeah, I, I, I think it's just true in so many areas in life. I think once you're propelled onto a platform and you realise just how out of your depth are, some people will go and that's it. And others will do the, the classic Charlie Parker and go and work harder. Mm. Um, but it's having someone show faith in you is one of those things that's come up a couple of times on the podcast. And these seminal moments, mm. first that saxophone that you got to note out of when you were eight. And then this sort of this platform to, well, you can start swimming or you can get out. Um, so... I also want to ask you about your two um, albums in your own name. Um, I sang in 2017, uh, and then The People Could Fly the year later. Yeah. Um, so for listeners, I sang features uh, the fantastic Sarah Tandy on piano, mm-hmm. and Femi uh, Colioso on drums, as well as Daniel Casimir on bass, and wonderful vocals uh, from Zara McFarlane. Yeah. And then People Could Fly with uh, added Shirley Tete on guitar. Yeah. 
And I think Winston Clifford replaces Femi on the drums, right? Yeah, um, Femi's on two tracks on that album. But yeah, oh, he, is, right. Sorry. he was starting yeah. to get busy and it was it was clear that he was going to be doing Ezra Collective and Nabai's thing and didn't have time to do it. So, you know, it was, we, I, I love Femi to bits, but yeah, Winston was coming through to, to take over that role. Oh, it's a proper result, right? I mean, they're both... Yeah, both amazing drummers. Exactly. And then also on that album, you've got uh, Charisse, um, Adams Burnett, and Omar even turns up, doesn't he, on that final track, um, Here But I'm Gone. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a nice little number to to sign off on. So for listeners, this is Chris's review of this in a, in two sentences. I sang is infused. Um, I don't know, like a calypso joy that infects the ballads on there as well. It's a really, it's just a really lovely piece of music. And then people could fly. To me, seems a slightly different expression, more of a reflection, um, and possibly even some sadness. How do you compare the two albums yourself? Um. I think you can see like as a development like when I was doing yeah when when I started with Isang it was like um I was also very new to writing for anything um but the pieces I think are more from the jazz tradition for that and then as you say yeah there was we need to do a kind of high life calypso-esque um thing as well um to reflect part a part of my heritage, um, both parts of my heritage, obviously high life originating um, from West Africa, Ghana, I um, was born in Nigeria, and then Calypso, coming from the Caribbean, my dad's Grenadian. Um, so that was part of it. And then I think when I got to the, the People Could Fly, um, first of all, there was, like with Eason, there was a story I feel there was more of a story with People Could Fly because it was actually based on a book that um, I had read from, you know, or had been read to me from when I was a child. Um, and it's just African folk tales, but the basis of that is slavery. So, yeah, the, the writing changed a little bit. And also, it was a bigger band. So mm. it I had to reflect that. And I liked the addition of guitar... It might have been also the fact that the personnel of the band changed and I was kind of trying to, you know, you move on and the music moved on, I guess. Yeah, it's it's just so important in life, isn't it? You can keep doing what you've done or you can keep walking forwards. Um, And yeah, I mean, they're very complimentary pieces of music. Uh, And apologies, isn't that funny that I read it as I sang because with my very western vernacular oh, yeah. i like and i thought there was like i know it means something else does it mean journey you yeah sang. it does yeah yeah well, so my mispronunciation funny. aside eh but i read it as i <laughs> sang almost like you know a bit like there was sort of my my angelo i know why the cage bird sing type thing it's like i sang it's a double pun but it's not that at all it's e-sang and i apologize Oh, that's right. I mean, it's kind of quite cool that people with the pronunciation, because as you say, yeah, it's open to anything, isn't it? That's that's um, the vibe of it. Um, the word does actually pop up in the new album, because as with a lot of African languages, I mean, well, their tone, my, from my tribe, um, the Abibio people, the, their language is tonal. So it's different. The words are different when used in different inflections um, and there can be also many, the word can be used for many different things. So um, it does turn up again, that word, the Isang in the new album, but um, it's used in the context of um, a kind of God context, uh, which I'll get onto. 
Well, you've segued beautifully, Camilla. This is like a, a self-interview. This is, it makes my life jolly easy. No, joking. But the the next part, the next step, you, you've been working on a new album, uh, which I think is currently being mixed. Um, well, A, have you got a title for it yet? And, and B, what's the direction that, you, that you're, you're taking it in? Yeah, I do have a title for it. It's called Ibio Ibio, um, which is a nickname for my tribe, the Ibio people. Um, yeah. It translates as being short, but it doesn't mean that we're basically we're really short people. I mean, I am quite short, but that's not the reason. It's like that kind of. Hey, on the... on Zoom, Camilla, we're all we're all equal. That's true, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's to do with like that kind of brief and efficient way of dealing with things, and that's that's their nickname, Ibio Ibio, and the sound has evolved. Um, I'm I very much like the Afrobeats vibe infused with jazz and I think that's still present but I I start embraced other elements of my kind of the music that I like I'm I very much I have been into hip hop for more or less my entire life um and I wanted to bring that in in a um in an authentic way because I think there is a danger with jazz musicians being like oh just get a rapper it'd be fine and then it sounding a bit not that good um so hopefully we've done this justice we use i'm uh have got a great hip-hop drummer called daru jones who i was very lucky to have toured with um when i did a tour with Wee ellis uh just before the world imploded with covid and um he's worked with so many people Farrah munch common i mean the list is like ridiculous um yeah. so he's on that and he's, he's so great and the thing is is he's really he's just been so uh open and excited about the project which has made it easier for me and it's nice um i also have a rapper um as someone i've toured with twice uh birmingham based rapper lady sanity um she's ridiculous again um such a great uh rapper and she's contributed a lot massively to the album um I, i'm really excited um for people to hear it and um, i think yeah i think it, we have done the genre justice hopefully um, have you so, still yeah. got any of the other band on there like sarah on keys or, yeah. or whatnot yes yeah. i do um because essentially for me they are my band that that is the core band and we are a musical family um so it's dan casimir on bass sarah tandy on keys, um, Winston Clifford on drums. So that the cause there, Shelly Teto on guitar. But what happened, um, it was just as a result of the events. Um, Sarah, we started re rehearsing it and unfortunately she, she got ill. Um, so she's on it, but she's not on all the tracks. I have another pianist, because um, we weren't right. sure you know, how long the, it would take for her to get to get better. So um, I've got Renato Paris on keys, oh, also nice. on vocals. Um, he's got a beautiful voice. Um, so Was that happenstance that you get someone that can sing as well? Or did you always imagine you'd need a, another was, voice? Well, I'd already asked him to do the vocals. And then when Sarah got her, she thought, oh, come and just come and do like the, the keys. Um, and I was just like, he sounds sick on this. You know, why are we looking for another pianist when we've got Renato and he's kind of, yeah, so it was brilliant. It just kind of clicked into place. Um, I also have a Cora player on the album. Ah, right, okay. Um, 
Gaku Kajali Koyote, who I played with. We did a show at the Purcell Room a couple of years ago for the uh, London Jazz Fest. And um, so we're doing one of the tunes that we did on that. And um, he's on a couple of other ones. We actually got him to blow over the hip hop tune. So (laughs) Cora on hip hop. So what type of stuff are you, what, what, what's the, the narrative to the album? Because if I took Isang, I'd say it's almost like a statement of, of who you are and these, this is what I play and this is how I play. And it's, I don't know, to my ear, it's just like you're absolutely in control of your instrument and it's like it just stands alone. The album that, that came next has this legacy point uh, that you're making and obviously the, the, the narrative based around slavery and also understanding your own heritage when you're working on uh this new album are you trying to do something different or is it a continuation of, of those those sort of those starting points um i think it's like it's a slight continuation it's basically um maybe i especially think when in i've seen the summer with the blm protests i f- yeah. never felt I, I mean it's it's kind of died down now hasn't it but you felt like I never felt more of, more of a kind of acceptance to be who I actually am, to embrace where I came from. Obviously, I'm British. I have a British passport. Um, but I wasn't born in this country. I was born in Nigeria. And so I think with this album, it's like a continuation of that theme because it's like, it's a dedication to my tribe, the Abibio people who are in the southeast coastal Nigeria. Our creation... Um, so the myths around how we we came to be um, and our beliefs and so you've got like the introduction of the album it's it is supposed it's not like it's not a sweet per se I mean I didn't write a piece of classical music but all the tunes run into each other the introduction is talking about Abassi and Atai who are the supreme ruler god if you like and and his wife and how he created the people of our tribe. Um, and that's the bit with the rapper. Then we go along to the uh, second track, uh, which is about our journey because the, uh, Abibia people are thought to come from Cameroon originally, which is just next door right. to Nigeria and, and my tribe split. So they came to either, they came either through the land, which meant they were, they became a new tribe or they came via the sea and this journey via the sea is the next track and that's they they settled um in Ekip where I was born and this tribe the Ibibio tribe came to be and then just goes through all the different bits the there's an important um shrine in my village uh it's a kind of thing. it's called the Juju Slave Route of Arachuku and it's a shrine to where they used to gather the slaves and take them down to the waiting beaches and it's just there's the that's the kind of thing it's a it's a narrative of the important things that make up the tribe and are important to me in my culture um and it's like a bookend it begins with the intro it ends with this outro um which is a similar the same as the intro um and the idea is just a celebration of us as a bbo people that sounds mammoth in yeah. terms of it <clears throat> not yeah, in it terms was. of biting off too much but in terms of the the relationship with identity and god and nation state and then tribe but then working through this i mean there's very little i think in, in modern uh 
narratives that is more visceral and painful or extraordinary for people to to think about than people being placed into slavery, standing there on the beach of that they've probably never seen and waving goodbye to a country that they'll never see again. Mm. It must have been a very emotional journey for you, especially with the backdrop of BLM across the last year. Did you come out of it feeling exhausted or feeling exultant? I felt I felt pleased, actually, um, that something that meant so much to me, I was able to complete. And, and it was work that I'm pleased with. I mean, I've been pleased with all this... Well, I said that actually it's probably not true um you know happy ish with the the other two albums but I feel very pleased with this one I hope I mean even if people say do you know what I don't like it I I guess it wouldn't matter that much to me um because I know that I've I think I've done something important to me bottom line it's has has it sort of hip and got a good vibe I think so, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, Chris, it's you, absolutely rubbish. <laughs> you will be the judge now. Um, we'll see. Yeah, I think it's... I, I'm really enjoying it. I forgot to say there is also a, a horn section in there as well, which I really beefs it up. Um, they're joined Ooh. by the amazing Sheila Maurice Gray on trumpet and right. Rosie Turton on trombone. So, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it was a nice, nice couple of days recording that. Oh, I I bet you must have had an absolute ball. So I guess that brings me to my next question, because what what for you is, is is the challenge or the difference between being the leader of a of a jazz outfit as opposed to being a member? Because obviously we reference Jazz Jamaica in this learning space, but many players then go, this is my niche, you know. It's not quite an orchestra, but I've got my place in that band. But you've taken a very different direction to say, A, I've got something to say in my own name, but B... I'm leading this. How? How? What are the pressures involved in that? And you know, does it change the way you play and, and approach the whole the whole thing of your own music? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something. Um, there are pressures that you only really fully appreciate when you are actually responsible for other people. Um, you feel, you know, it's obviously financial pressures. I don't. I'm slowly starting how to try and make money um from my project i generally um fund it with doing my my side person stuff you know that's that's mainly it um and i'm now starting to kind of try to understand how to how to do that whilst making sure that musicians are taken care of especially doing um other people's projects you want to make sure that you're paying people fairly you're asking reasonable stuff you know things of them um and I find that puts a lot of pressure, can put a lot of pressure on you. And there is a a huge amount of pressure when you are the person that's running the gig. Um, and so you have all the other stuff going on, all the business stuff and the being maybe promoting it, etc. And then you have to be the person to deliver on stage. And there were many times, I think when we did our first album tour, where I, that I couldn't deliver because there was just too much. I was taking on too much. I was driving the tour bus, which was an error and never <laughs> to be repeated. Um, I was just absolutely knackered. So, you know, you turn up, there's one place, they refuse to take it down off YouTube, but it's like, must be one of my worst performances ever and it's still <laughs> enshrined on YouTube. And you can just see from my face that I completely drained because I tried to, you know, been managing, I was a tour manager, driving the bus, then trying to present the music, then trying to sell the albums, 
afterwards, then making sure the band are okay. And I think, yeah, it can, there is a huge difference between being a band member and then leading your own band. Yeah, all eyes look to you. Plus, you know, mm. that sense, you're a, you're a good human. You, you want to do right by everyone. And in the way that your bands have actually got bigger, it's not just you, Dan and Sarah. It's you plus sort of, you know, eight other people or, or however many are adding up. And that, yeah, I get the pressure. I, I see it. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it can be, can be quite, I mean, obviously it's amazing and it's great to be able to play my own music, but yeah, it, it can be quite stressful sometimes. Right, now for my stock standard question. No, this isn't stock at all. For my, for my, my probing question. <clears throat> Camilla George, London Jazz Scene, 2010 to 2020. Discuss. Ooh. Well, that's that's <laughs> that's a broad spectrum. Um, okay, so twenty ten. I thinking about it. I I always like when I think of the London jazz scene and it's like evolution. I I guess I always think in kind of re- uh, relation to what was happening with the Warriors or what my involvement yeah. was. Um, but twenty ten. Um, I know that um people like Zara McFarlane. She was obviously quite big but obviously the the warriors who are now dominating the scene it was just bubbling then it wasn't you know people weren't really doing stuff ever see uh ezra collective didn't exist um and the buyer wasn't wasn't playing um wasn't doing her own gig at that time so it was very different i think um the ronnie scott scene was quite quite dominant um I remember definitely like during college years, that was the thing. You used to go down. I um, can't remember if this is accurate, but I think Mike Moenzo was still there during that period. Um, right. That was definitely a memorable uh, time for me with his late, late sessions. I mean, yeah. they were crazily kind of out there. But he was really, really supportive. I know, um, you know, I, I just, I thought he was, you know, he's very supportive of younger players coming up and I really liked that kind of role um, uh, that he had. And then, yeah, guess getting to towards, when do I think things came in? I guess it was like, what, 2016, maybe, when the people from that, from the Warriors scene started to break through and he started to get, um, Ezra Collective, I think we put put together first, and then Naria, I think, came through, yeah. um, and then uh, yeah, people like Binko was always doing Moses, then was doing his own thing. So I think, yeah, it's it's a story, a situation of two halves because you've got like the first half where it was like for me very much focused on Ronnie Scotts and going there, and then the 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 last five years of that, I think it's the the scene started shifting, and you have loads of other venues. I mean, Jazz Refreshed, it has to be said, have been going for what's it like twenty years? Um, right. But I think that I mean, and they've always been hip, but I think they became really hip during that latter period, like twenty fifteen. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason for asking the question. <clears throat> Because you give an answer which is sort of similar to what's going on in my mind, which is like, yeah, there was a sort of bubbling evolution, and there wasn't an exact moment. But uh, you know, you know, like the 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 tube map of London. Say, I think you can sort of start to put things on on that map that yeah. maybe like represent the big stations. So you've got like 
uh, Jazz Refreshed or you've got Tomorrow's Warriors or indeed then you've got people like Binker and uh, you know right through to Moses Boyd etc he's yeah. come out but it's like now where do they all relate and there are so many crossovers it's oh but where does Steam Down fit in or what about the influence of like Makaya McRaven and all the American stuff and it's like yeah just all these different lines I just think it's amazing and I just really wanted to know what it's like to sort of see that because you are very much part of it you I mean you have played a, a seminal part in that journey I'd say or that map well, it's interesting that you should say, I mean, I always think of myself as being a little bit on the outskirts, unlike, say, Nabaya or whatever, but I remember it caused a lot of controversy, I, I think. I mean, I, to me, I I, I was very uh, humbled to have been included, but there was an uh, Australian lady who actually did a kind of family tree. Um, she's oh, right. an cool. artist and she put it on Twitter and she was trying to map this but I think what the problem is is that she upset some of the older musicians who felt that that was a disrespect because they hadn't you know they haven't been included and you know obviously she lives in Australia so she probably wasn't so hip to you know yeah what was exactly going. what's going down yeah but that, exactly. that, that's interesting now you, now you've said that about the the older musician that feeling that it seems always about the younger more, or, or more relevant. And yet there's still a con- continuation. And certainly in jazz, the role of the mentor, the educator, though this is what's worked mm. in the past, we've referenced heavily um, the influence of Gary and Janine Crosby. Um, but so many others, you know, in, in, in the British scene, like Orphy Robinson, etc. But also the people that used to go through that jam session at the Late Late Show at Ronnie's, et cetera, et cetera, mm. all the music schools, you can't map it in isolation, but you can certainly recognise it as being something different because it is unique what's happened in the last five years. I think so. I think also, I think the, the problem is what's caused a lot of um, upset is actually it's not coming from the young players. If you were to ask... I mean, I can't speak for them, but if you were to ask for some of these younger generations who are younger than me that are coming through who are, you know, massive, they're all bigging up your your Tony Kofi's. Um, right. I'm trying to... Trying, now I'm showing my... You know, Dennis Baptiste. Yeah, that's right. Cleveland yeah, Walkers. You know, they're bigging them up because we... I think everyone recognises them to be absolute, you know, forefront um people and their instruments and they have paved the way for us and they are still relevant but i think it's just because the narrative has you know some of the articles have not included them that it's created maybe some in some way a kind of uh like break which isn't really there i don't think i don't think that's how people feel but it's interesting, isn't it? Being on the inside, you don't see the the, the the separation of it all. And certainly when you when you watch a, a group, we've, we've referenced them a couple of times now, uh, Jazz Jamaica, you can see everyone's in that band, whatever assembly yeah. there is. But, you know, it doesn't matter who's on drums or who's on, on the front line. Um, right, enough of, enough, enough, enough uh, of the current scene, but it might be the relevant time for it. I'm going to ask you now, Camilla, okay. for your top three albums... Of all okay. time. It has to be oh. definitive and, you know, it's got to be perfect. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I actually have them on my phone. Um, what? And, Someone's well, prepared? Yeah. Are you sure you're uh, a jazz musician? <laughs> I may have done so. Um, it's got to be Songbook. 
Um, right. Most people know I literally hero worship Kenny Garrett. And there are loads of albums that I like um, of his. Well, I, I basically like them all. But this one was the one where I discovered him at the Guildhall Summer School. Someone was like, oh, do you know, you know the other Kenny G? I was like, what do you mean? You mean the one with the bubble pair? And they're like, no. And um, yeah, I just, I, I think with Kenny Garrett, not only is the man such a ridiculous sax player, but what I like about his compositions is something I would like, I've always wanted to try to emulate, is that they sound simple. They're really not. And I, to me, that is way more impressive than some of the stuff at college, which is very tiring of people being like, I've written this in 15 and it sounds like it's in 15. I mean, it's not, you know, there's that, there's a place for that, but it's not music that perhaps I particularly want to, to hear. It's a, it sounds hard and it's not engaging, but his stuff is is actually, when you start to play it, like, oh, okay, yeah, well, this is actually not quite as easy as I thought it was. Um, and I think that's be- a beauty. Yeah. yeah, I saw him at um, Ronnie Scott's a couple of years ago. I think it was a couple, probably about 10 years ago, no doubt. But his infectious ability as a performer as well as a a musician and a composer the way he got this room to sort of start clapping a really quite complex rhythm and then he played over it it was like all of that reference points of uh of you know of the clip so of the dance of the joy of the music just came through in like this immediate instance and he's just such a mercurial player he was just you know lilting around on the top it was wicked yeah, that's the thing I I love about him is like, I mean, I remember at college, people being quite snooty. Uh, oh, well, he did happy people. I was like, but the thing is, is number one, he's made a huge amount of money of that. So what other jazz, you know, you have to think as a, as a jazz musician when people are telling you that you're only going to make like £10. I mean, he's shown that, you know, he didn't sell out. He wrote a piece that, you know, is infectious. But also I think he brings in the element of the music. When you look at photos of people in the 40s and 50s at clubs in New York, jazz clubs, they're dancing quite a lot of the time. You know, of course there were you know, gigs where they sit down audience, but I think that element of dance and joy is infectious and is part is at the root of the music which is of um, back origin, obviously it links back to Africa. And when you think, when I think of the music that I heard from, you know, from the section of Nigeria I'm from, that's what it is. There's joy. Could, could not agree more. Right. Record number two. Okay. Um, number two. I mean, I've put it as a record, but actually it is only one tune on there. But the, because the one tune is so sick, it's like the whole album uh, stands it's uh, Bar Talk which is by Jeff Tame Watts Um, and it's um, all for the tune Mr JJ which has the infamous saxophone battle between Michael Brecker and Branford Marsalis which I just it's just absolutely ridiculous Um, I remember uh, Troy Miller because uh, he used to live near where I grew up um, on the outskirts of London um, and he uh, 
he introduced me to this album. I went to his house for a barbecue where I met all these like amazing musicians. I was quite young and he was like, they were playing this album and they're like, oh, have you heard of this? Jeff Tame Watts. I was like, oh, yeah, it's killing. It's such, such a great album, but that tune is, is amazing. I think that has to be one of the greatest recommendations of, you know, and sort of infectious go listen that we've ever had for an album where I sort of know most listeners are now going to go, I'm going to play that now. Yeah. Um, fantastic. So, recommendation toi. Okay. Um, it has to be um, Sunny Side Up. Boop, boop. Um, because, again, I used to listen to that with my dad. So I've got that on vinyl. Um, and, yeah, I mean, who who can go wrong with Sunny Stitt and Sunny Runnings? I just feel like a perfect union. You've you've banked it. It's there, and I. If there was ever a sort of hit list, that would always be in the top ten, as far as I'm concerned. Absolute yeah. masterstroke of a third choice. <laughs> so, gosh, we've 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 scampered through so much, um, but I've still got one more thing. Um, so okay. I want to introduce you, Camilla, uh, to our house band. Now it used to be a septet, uh, but Eddie Parker and James Pearson uh, from Ronnie Scotts have seen hell-bent on, on bankrupting me, so I'm getting more and more musicians. But right now, we've got Vi Red on alto, uh, Mark Nightingale on trombone, and Dizzy Gillespie on trumpet. Uh, Backline, okay. we've got um, this, this new fellow, Duke Ellington, on piano, John Patitucci on bass, and Brian Blades on drums, thanks to a cunning double swap from Clark Rundell. And then we've also got Leanne Carroll on vocals and keyboards or whatever she's doing to complement the Duke. And now we also have to contend with John Schofield on guitar. So it's a whole load of names thrown at you. But what, what I'm going to do, Camilla, to say thank you so much for you joining us is to let you review that band. And my gift to you, you may change up to one of those musicians. I could change one musician. Oh, yeah. Uh, I can who, read them who, again if you'd like. Who's on drums? Uh, Brian Blades. Oh. Hmm. oh, that is a really hard one. Um, I'd be tempted to swap him out for Blakey. Oh, we haven't had Art Blakey in the band to date. Yeah, we, we'll 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 do that. That's a fantastic, uh, fantastic addition, and I'm sure there'll be some pretty uh, sick stuff going on between Duke Ellington, John Patitucci, and Art Blakey. Keep everyone on their toes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a mishmash uh, of stars. <laughs> wonderful. Well, thank you for that. Um, and uh, I don't think anyone's going to argue. And I have a feeling that Art Blakey may hang around a little bit. So it just leaves me to say thank you so much, Camilla, for joining us today. We cannot wait to get you to Watford so we can all hear you play live. Um, But moreover, we're going to be waiting with bated breath for the release of Ibeo Ibeo. When can we expect to hear it? Oh, well, that's the uh, million-dollar question. Um, I'm hoping later this year. As I say, we have just finished mixing it. We need to get a master and fingers crossed we'll release later this year awesome well we shall we'll all keep our eyes peeled for that thank you 
Um, <clears throat> so if you've liked what you've listened to today, make sure you subscribe to the Watford Jazz Junction podcast so you don't miss any of these wonderful episodes. If you want to know more about the Watford Jazz Junction, check out our website at watfordjazzjunction.com or follow us on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else where there's something vaguely social happening. Don't forget to keep your ears fresh and always connect with something new. But it's bye-bye from me and goodbye to you, lovely listener, and goodbye from Camilla. Bye. Bye. Bye.